revealed word from God. I believe in, I believe in God's word. I believe in the scriptures. I just believe that it's living and active. It's, you know, as mentioned, sharper than in a two-edged sword. Jesus said, the words that I say unto you, their spirit and their life. The Bible is, uh, has life. It has the breath of God. It's the breath of God contained in it. And so I believe that uh, as we study it and read it and ponder it, it has the ability to transform us, change our lives. Romans 12 and 2 is a familiar verse of Scripture to many of us, and that is to allow your mind to be renewed. You'll be transformed through that process of having your mind to be renewed. So today, I want to talk to you from a, a, about a message that the Lord put on my heart that I have a title and a subtitle. Uh, the title is that we might know, that we might know, because God wants you to know, right? He doesn't want you to live in ignorance. You can miss a lot of the favor and the blessing of God because of your ignorance. Ignorance is not necessarily a bad word, correct? It's something that can be corrected by being diligent in our study and our willingness to learn. So that's my title that we might know. And then I have a subtitle borrowed from a message that I heard preached years ago right here at this assembly from a, in the Assemblies of God, a famed evangelist, Dean Caldwell. So that we might know, and I know this seems like opposites, God hath made me forget. God has made me known some things, and God hath made me forget. So let's see if we can seem, somehow weave these two thoughts together and come away with something that will affect us in a positive way. So let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm grateful for the Word of God, grateful to be amongst a people who are zealous for the Word, hungry. They love the Word of God. They're thankful for not only the reading of Scripture, but the teaching and the exhortation associated with it. Now, Father, certainly there are a number of uh, uh, people in our, in our midst today who could easily step up here and minister the Word to this congregation, to this group of men and women that are gathered. But God, for whatever reason, you have given me this opportunity, and I pray, Lord, that, that I can be pliable. My thoughts and my imaginations would be yours that, God, the things that I say would be born of God, but equally as much, the heart of the people would be prepared to receive, as James said, the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. So we love you, and we're thankful today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. And so take your Bibles, if you would, and I know some of you that means take your cell phones, but don't you be cheating. It's exactly right. Matter of fact, if somebody is looking at their Bible on their phone, I want the neighbor to kind of look over <laughs> and out of the corner of their eye, and you just, y'all judge each other in that moment, hold each other accountable. But if you have the, your scriptures, now, we're going to put these verses on the screen, and that's good. That's a very helpful tool in today's time. However, there's nothing like having the familiarity of your own Bible where you get your own fingerprints embedded into the page and you, you, and you write it and you, get, you, you feel it and you know it. So I encourage you that if you brought a Bible with you, then, then, and if you don't bring a Bible with you, bring a Bible with you. And so let's read this together. Here's a passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, that I want us to kind of just journey down it's the last ten or seven verses, excuse me, of this chapter that the greatest emphasis is going to come from. But it's important to set the context. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Anybody that's familiar with the letter to the Corinthians understands that there, it was a church that was filled with factions and schisms, uh, issues that were very prevalent amongst the people. Things, it's a very practical book, addresses uh, things that, you know, just come up and, and dealing with humanity. But, but in the middle of that, though, Paul drops some just some dynamic spiritual truths, not just practical things, but some spiritual uh, things that, that we can glean and get a hold of. And so he said, when I, brethren, when I came to you, and so obviously Paul has been to the Corinthian people previously uh, by noting his missionary journey and also understanding this epistle He's actually written a previous epistle that is lost to antiquity. Um, and he said, so as he's looking back, he said, when I came to you, he said, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. It wasn't his great uh, pulpit ministry is what he's uh, 
recognizing. He said, that was not who I was, as I declared unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. How many of you know there's a simplicity to the gospel that can be often overlooked? I tell sometimes the, uh, in, in our conversation amongst our staff and even on Wednesday nights, I said, sometimes I believe theologians, uh, almost like people that like to hear themselves speak, are almost to the degree that they have written out so much dialogue about a passage of Scripture that sometimes they just rob the text of just the simple truth that's contained in it. And Paul, in the midst of uh, the Corinthians with the Grecian Hellenistic culture, uh, which gave a lot of attention to learning, uh, Paul said, I determined not to know anything except for two spikes and a crown of thorns and a bowed overhead. Jesus Christ, death on the cross and the blood that was shed. That's what he said, I chose to put my attention and my emphasis. And he said, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So uh, he said, in my speech, read this with me, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, to which I'll allude to more in a moment. He said, but it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And it's noted in Paul's own epistles that his bodily presence wasn't great. It was, he wasn't a large uh, a physical specimen, but he was even deemed weakly to some. And he might not have been the greatest pulpit communicator. But he said that when I ministered the word, it wasn't in word only. But there was a demonstration of the Spirit of God and of power. I thank God that today God still confirms his word with signs and wonders following. I believe today in the supernatural power of the Spirit of God, don't you? I thank God that His work of grace supersedes my ability to convey to you about His work of grace. Thank God that you're not limited to my human ability to communicate to you the depth and the width and the height of the love of God exhibited in Christ, but that the Spirit of God can write and reveal, write on your heart and reveal to you the person of Jesus. Paul said that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thank God for that today. I thank the Lord. Let's go a little bit farther. Howbeit, or however, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature. So he's addressing the, the church that's maturing. Notice this, and there's such a depth to what he shares here. Yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. Anytime you see the word princes of this world, it's contained either of two. It could actually be the, uh, the rulers that were in Rome or certainly in Jerusalem. It could be the, you know, the, the governmental leaders, the princes, those that are making polity and law and practice. Or it could also be principalities, demonic powers, spirits, that I actually believe this particular passage is, uh, uh, is addressing. So read that with me. He said, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. He said, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, unto our good. He said, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, if you look at it from the sense of this narrative, just very quickly, is that if the enemy had really known what was going to take place when he entered Judas of Iscariot and incited him to betray Jesus on that fateful night at the Passover table, if he had really known the full effects of what would take place, he would not have moved the crowd to say, away with this man, give us Barabbas. What shall I do, Pontius Pilate said, with this man whom you've rejected? Crucify him, the crowd yelled. Why, where did they get that stimulus from demonic powers, whispering in their ears? Crucify, had the devil really known what, what was going to take place to the good of the people of God? 
when Jesus shed his blood on the cross and the power of sin was broken and that Jesus would descend into the lower parts of the earth and he would take from Satan the keys to death and of hell and he would be resurrected three days later triumphant over the grave raised 40 days later into the presence of God where he sits at the right hand of God awaiting his enemies to be made his footstool. If the devil had really known that the people that he held in fear and in bondage because of death, Hebrews 2 and 14, would have that fear totally removed because of the hope of resurrection. People that were bound to idolatry and idolatrous practices because of the spell of witchcraft, That power could be broken now because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said, had the princes of this world really known, they would have not have made the fateful mistake that they made in crucifying the Lord of glory. I mean, you know, that's a good word right there. I could go home and be like Joe said earlier. It's been good to be in the Lord's house from right there, but we're not finished as of yet. He said, so as it is written, so then Paul shifts our attention to the Scriptures. Anytime you see the word written in Paul's writing, he's alluding to the old covenant who Paul affirmed and believed in, understood that it contained as much of the mind and the heart of God as the new covenant that was emerging. He said, but as it is written, now this is a passage that you and I have quoted at funerals and everything, but often we've taken it right out of its context because Paul is quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah was in front of the cross, before the cross, before the coming of Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit. For Isaiah said, I has not seen, and the ear has not even heard fully, neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love him. There's a mysterious element about it, Paul is saying. Men haven't seen it or understood it in days gone by. But I love verse number 10. But God, in date for, for 4,000 years, the promises that God had and desired to reveal and the potential that he had inside of his creation was held in check until the fullness of time was come, until Jesus Christ would come. And now the Bible says, God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. Thank God for the Spirit of the Lord. Now let's begin to dialogue because we're right here where I want to begin to pick this up. So Paul is saying there have been mysterious elements related to both God and eternity about your future, about your present, about how you can function and relate, how you can know the invisible God. We have not seen God with our natural eye. We have not handled him with our physical hands, but we commune with him. We stood in a worship service a moment ago and we asked for His presence to be known right here in this room till His glory could reveal uh, the goodness of God. And so Paul said that with all the invisible qualities of God that have been hidden for generation and generation and eyes not seen it and ears not heard it and man has not contemplated it, he said, but now we're living in a generation and a time that God is revealing those mysteries to us by the power of His Holy Spirit. I love that passage of Scripture. God has revealed them unto us. Who is the us in that passage? The us in the first account would be the apostles and the prophets who first had divine revelation. In Ephesians chapter number 3, as the apostle Paul is affirming the work of the Spirit and the inclusion of the Gentiles, Paul said these things were hidden from generations but are now being revealed to us but to the apostles and the prophets. Jesus told his own disciples when he was there with them, as they sat down and they regathered after a day of, of, of ministry, Jesus said, I've got a lot of things I want to tell you right now. Things that you can't and you're not ready to receive. He said, but when the Spirit of God has come, he said, he's going to, he's going to lead you into all truth. So here's a promise contained that the Spirit is the one that reveals to us the hidden things of God. None seems to have any greater revelation than the Apostle Paul. All of the apostles and the prophets of the first century contained and gained revelation from God. But the Apostle Paul seemed to be the one that had the greatest 
depth of revelation. Uniquely and oddly enough, he gives us, though he was not walking with Jesus for three and a half years like the other 11 apostles, but he gives us two-thirds of all of the new covenant. For he had a revelation. He testifies by his own pen in his epistles. I had a revelation, a revealing of Jesus Christ. He didn't walk and talk with him physically, but he had an unveiling. God revealed to him the mystery of the gospel. His prayer for the Ephesian church was this. He said, I pray that when you read, you're going to understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I pray that myself today. I pray that quite often. I hope that you do as well because I don't want to be trapped in ignorance. See, I can, I can be from a rural community, I can be from a small school, but that doesn't mean I have to be trapped in ignorance. I don't, I've not been, I was speaking with someone the other night that had a doctorate degree, and I said, I don't have any. But that doesn't mean that I'm ignorant of the Word of God, because I can be taught by the same Spirit that revealed this New Testament grace to Paul. That same Spirit is my teacher and your teacher if we'll trust him to be so. Paul had gained so much revelation from God that the Bible actually says that it resulted in him having a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him because of the abundance of his revelation. Paul recognized that it is the Spirit that reveals the things of God, that the Spirit of God. Look at this in that verse 10. The Spirit searches out, searches out the things of God that belong to God. What kind of things? The deep things of God. How many know that there are some shallow things that we can wade into? But how many of you know that if you study and you're diligent and you're humble and you seek God, God will take you into a depth. Ezekiel saw a little image of it related to the work of the Spirit in his generation. He said, the Spirit of God was like a river, and I waded out, and I was in ankle water. He said, it was just over my water. And then he said, I went a little bit deeper. And he said, and it was at my knees. And it wasn't longer before I was covered, my loins were covered by the water. And he said, and pretty soon, it was a river I couldn't even cross. I believe that's a, 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 just a little bit of an ind indicative of what we can have through the power of the Holy Spirit. That we start out, we start out as children in the Lord. But we can mature into young men. And we can eventually be fathers in the Lord. And so you can grow in your faith. And Paul is saying, who's going to take you into the depth of God? It's the Spirit of God. Now Paul goes on to make a general comparison to mankind. I want you to see this with me in the 11th verse. He said, what knows the things of a man except the spirit of man? What knows this? Or who knows? Nobody knows you like you is what he's saying. I can shake your hand, I can hug your neck, I can, you know, we can have good fellowship together, we can go turkey hunting together, we can fish in a boat, we can cry at the altar, I can know you only to a certain level, but nobody knows you like you, like your own thoughts, your imaginations, your uncertainties, mentioned earlier, your anxieties, your fears. You know yourself. Our spouses know us, but they don't know everything about us. You share some of your thoughts with your spouse. Quite regularly, our spouses share their thoughts with us. Just let it go. But we don't share all of our thoughts with nobody. But before a word is formed in your tongue, your thoughts are known of God, and you know your thoughts. And Paul said here, we know the spirit of man knows. So then he said this, look at this. He said, the things of God, look at the 11th verse there. The things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Isn't that powerful? Oh, the mysteries of God. I love what Paul said. In Romans 11 and 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I remember many years ago when Sherry and I took one of our very first vacations. It was the very first vacation that we were able to make with our children to go to the Emerald Coast. And so it was the first time collectively as a family that we would got to go to the ocean. Which is what, what you know that is around the, 
the, the coastline of Florida, and we were at Panama City Beach. And I came back and I preached a message about that experience because one of the points that I made is that I discovered for, this, for myself that the beauty of the ocean is not what you see above the water. But that the beauty of the ocean, the greater beauty contained is what's below the water. And so let me tell you, there's some things that we know about God that are on the external. But I'm telling you, there's a depth in God of growth and love and, and that we get, to, we get to be matured into of seeing and understanding. And he said it again, the depths of his riches, of his wisdom and his knowledge. And then Paul then, let's go down. We're just dialoguing this. We're getting somewhere. I hope you're catching this with me so far. Because the original title of this message is that we might know. God wants you to know. Right? Catch that with me. God wants you to know. Paul said, we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. Now I want you to think about that moment for just a moment. Because, see, I believe in the trichotomy of mankind. What is that? And that's theological term to say that man is a triune being made in the likeness of God. Not a dichotomy, not just uh, soul and body, but we are spirit, soul, and body. I believe that, that God, the Godhead, the power of the gospel, Godhead is the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, I pray to God that you may be sanctified spirit, soul, and body. And so... I have a spirit. I believe that every person living has a spirit. Some associate it with breath because in the original Hebrew, it's pneuma, it's breath, or that's Greek, it's breath. But in the, in the Old Covenant, it meant breath. But we believe that it's more than just the physical breath, but the life, the capacity to handle and contain the life of God. We believe soul is our mind, will, and emotions, our flesh. But we believe that when a person comes to faith in Christ, Genuine faith in Christ. Previously, you knew about God. You knew there was a God. You knew that there was a God called Yahweh. You knew there was a Jewish people. You knew there was a Bible. But you didn't know Him intimately. But when you professed, you believed in your heart, and you confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our belief that at that moment, God breathed into your spirit the breath of life, the Spirit of God, and Paul would write to the Romans and say, his spirit has joined with my spirit. See, my spirit didn't have the life of God. It had life, but not the life of God. But now that I'm born again, that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, I don't even understand what you're talking about. How can I re-enter into my mother's womb the second time and be born the second time? Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He wasn't talking about a natural birth. But he was talking about a spiritual birth. God is spirit. And when you are born again, he sends his spirit into your heart crying, Father, Father. And you be able to, you're then able to communicate with God through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said the Father is seeking those. He is spirit and he's searching for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so you and I as born-again believers, it's our belief that we've been regenerate by the Spirit. We have life in the Spirit. And for that purpose, His Spirit reveals to us the things that are freely given to us. Look at the 12th verse. He said, by the power of the Spirit of God, we might know, there's that title of the message, that you and I might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And I'm going to expound on that in a moment. So let's drop down to the 13th verse. So Paul said, the things that we speak then and we declare, notice this, we don't declare it in words which man's wisdom teacheth. Now, man can grow in wisdom. There's an earthly wisdom, and Paul is addressing it, and he's separating godly wisdom from earthly wisdom. How many of you know there's a difference? And earthly, the writer James said, the earthly wisdom is sensual and it's devilish. Paul said in Romans 1 that man by wisdom knew not God. We see it in our generation today. We see some of the most brilliant minds that looks at the creation and steps back. And they can tell us all the minute details as scientists and biologists and all of this. And they can look at the wonders of creation and they'll take a giant step back and say there is no God. The psalmist said, I don't care how many degrees you've got. You're a fool 
if you can look at the creation and not see that the creation declares to us the handiwork of God. And so in this passage here, Paul is saying this knowledge is not gained through man's wisdom because that's earthly, sensual, devilish. But this wisdom is from above. This knowledge and wisdom is revealed by a spirit to those that are born of the Spirit of God. And look at the 13th verse because this will help us understand where I'm going to go here in a few moments. He said here, the, uh, the Holy Ghost, look at this, which things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual truths with spiritual. Now let me help you understand that narrative for just a moment of time. In this 13th verse, there are two different interpretations in the theological world concerning this application. Two different means of interpretation. One is this. The word there, when he says comparing, is also interpreting or teaching. So Paul is either saying he compares, he interprets, and he teaches spiritual truths to spiritual people. Or he's saying, he's saying that God, by his Spirit, compares and interprets and teaches spiritual truths with or through the means of spiritual truths. As if God wants to teach you one thing, he's going to use something else to teach you the thing that he now wants you to know. And it's possible that it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. That Paul is saying that there are truths hidden in the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But the carnal man can't receive these things. That's on down in the 14th verse. In the 14th verse, he said the natural man can't receive these things. But the spiritual man, the man that's born again, the man that's got the life of God. See, you can take somebody with a great education, a brilliant mind, and not be born again. And you can put a simple spiritual truth in front of them, and oddly enough, they can't receive it because they're not born again. And then you can take some of us that may be simple-minded, but at the same time when the Spirit of God comes upon us, He illuminates truth, and you can put that same truth in front of us, and we can say, I know that because it's been revealed to me by my Father. Man, I feel Jesus right there. God wants you to know. Are y'all out there today? God wants you to know. And so if you're born again, you have the capacity to receive the revelation of spiritual truth. So spiritual truths, then, are the tool and the means that God uses as he compares. He uses some spiritual truths to compare and to reveal other spiritual truths. Verse number 15 says, but he that is spiritual judges or affirms spiritual truths that are placed in front of him. And so let's go back to the 12th verse. That we might know the things, here it goes, and we're going to make it as personal to you as we can, that are freely given to us of God. I don't, I don't want to go through life and one day I stand in front of the Father and all of a sudden God says, all these things were available to you. You know, I heard a story long years ago when I was attending Prevailing Word Christian Center when I was first baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it was a guest evangelist that told the story about somebody that had taken a cruise, saved a lot of money to take a cruise, uh, always wanted to go on a cruise. He and his spouse saved up money. And then when they got on the ship, they so conserved. They had snuck food in. They were, they, were, they were trying to conserve because they didn't believe they would have enough money to purchase the food on the, on the cruise. Only for the cruise to be completed for them to later discover that when they bought the ticket, all the meals were provided. I don't want my life to be like that. I don't want to go through life, stand before God, and say, you lived your life without the power of the blessing that I had for you, and it was simply tied to your ignorance of what I said in the Word of God. So that you might know God gave us His Spirit because there are hidden things in God and who He is and His wonders and His wonder-working power and grace that's available to all of us if we but believe. So I believe that we need revelation and understanding as both to the eternal reward. Y'all out there, church family of faith, and that which is available now on this side of eternity. Some things are within our grasp. Some things are within our reach on this side of eternal life. I believe there's some wonderful things reserved for us at the resurrection, don't you? But I also believe that God's left us things here and now that we can receive if we receive them by faith. 
A lot of believers live in ignorance to the blessing and the promises of God. Obviously, the first application is to the here and now. If you were here last week, you may remember that I preached a message, Why I Believe in God's Healing Covenant. Anybody remember that message? If not, you go on the podcast and, and listen to it. Say, Pastor Brown, uh, is every person y'all pray for uh, healed? No, I've obvi- uh, that's obvious. Obvious, it's not, that's the case. But at the same time, that doesn't mean it has to be that way. That, that you and I can challenge ourselves to believe that we have a covenant made with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I've dialogued it on Wednesday night, and I'm not going to re-pick it up here today. But I just wanted you to be reminded that uh, in Psalm 103, the psalmist said, forget not all of his benefits. But you can't forget what you don't know. And so you've got to know. And so did you know five times in Paul's epistles he said, I would not have you ignorant, brethren? That's a great verse for the ladies to know, to be able to speak to their husbands. Never mind, let's move right along. Five times. But, you know, Paul did summarize but say, but if any man is ignorant, let him be ignorant. If the information's provided, the opportunity's there, the Spirit of God's willing to reveal, ignorance is your choice. You have the opportunity to learn. I believe in God's healing covenant, but it starts with believing in it. I'm in the process of, of seeking to grow to believe for it. How many know there's a difference between believing in something and believing for it in your life? And so we want to see God's people healed miraculously. We want it to be like there's uh, in the days of ancient Israel. There will be no feeble one among us. I'm believing for that, learning, growing, developing. I believe in it. But I was visiting with Sister Yoder this past week, and as she and I was visiting in our time together, and she said, Pastor Brown, she said, I've been in church all my life, and I've never heard, I never heard what you taught us last Sunday, that we have a covenant that provides healing. And so I want to say today, nothing has changed from then till now. I believe God through Christ has given us a healing covenant. And I pray that we all receive revelation concerning that healing covenant. And I also believe the healing is not just physical. I believe it's more than that. But it's first spiritual, right? When you're born again, there's the healing of your spirit. You have the life of God. But I also believe it can be mental and emotional. How many of you believe that with me today? See, I believe that today. The pain that many experience. You know, we live in a generation a lot of people are hurt. People are mean. Come on, now let's just be honest. And there's through neglect and negligence. We live in a drug-induced society. Children are left to fend for themselves. Moms and dads have been violated by demon spirits through the pharmacia. We talked about it on Wednesday night, drug addiction. And it's leaving people wounded and hurting, broken, lacking the healing power of God. The pain that people have experienced, the trauma that they've gone through, the abuse We live in a generation of abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, and perhaps the greatest of all, sexual abuse. When we think about these things, church family, we see the need for the healing power of God. And I want you to know today that I believe in all my heart that upon the back of Jesus and upon his brow, And the seven fountains of blood that flowed freely from the Savior's veins on that faithful day when he pillowed his head on the cross of Calvary, that the blood that was shed that day was also to include not just our physical healing, but our emotional healing, and our spiritual healing, and our mental healing to make us whole as people so that we can relate to one another, that we can be a blessing in the community. That we can be a light to all those others that are seated in darkness. I was stirred when I heard the testimonies as many of you. And I want to commend our church family. I I want to stand for JoJo tonight. Or today. I commend so many of you coming out last Sunday night. To hear the testimony of our students as they, and our teachers and the, the, the adults that traveled with the students to the mission in Arizona. And to hear their testimony of first, uh, what had, their heart was so compassionate towards the children that we know were abused. But then also to hear in multiple places from some of our own students, just briefly, it wasn't time for them to give their testimony, but where they alluded to 
that they're going through the process of being healed. Come on, somebody. Of a lot of brokenness in their own life as well. Did you know that the ministry of Jesus includes this? He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. God sent Jesus to every person who goes to bed at night with sorrow of heart, grief, and images of trauma flashing in your mind. God sent Jesus to the cross of Calvary to bring a life-giving flow to your life so that you don't have to live the rest of your life to the trauma of your past. Are y'all out there today? The psalmist said, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I look for somebody to take pity. But there was none. And I looked for comforters, and I found none. Throughout Scripture, we find reference to genuine human sorrow. Are y'all out there today? Human misery, toil, grief, depression, oppression. Words like this, anguish of soul. And oftentimes, it's the result of neglect or abuse. Is that right here today? Oftentimes, the anguish of soul that people can find themselves living in well into their senior years is from trauma that they experience many times, even as young children. See, we can have a scar, and the physical body can heal over, but sometimes that wound runs much deeper than the ability of the physical body to heal it over. It's a hurt, a wound, it's a cutting. But I want you to know. I want you to know that I believe in a healing Jesus today. I believe in his power, his grace, and his kindness, his love, and his mercy. I believe that he sees you, he saw you, he knows where you're at. I know that many of you may say, well, where was God when I was being wounded or hurt or abused? I'm telling you, God was, well, God was not the originator of that evil person that hurt or wounded you. But God will take you through that darkened valley. And he'll bring you out on the other side with a testimony of his healing mercy and grace. Because there'll be somebody else one day that needs to hear what God did in your life. As a living testimony to the healing power of God. I wrote it this way in my notes. Counseling can be good. I believe in it, don't you? Therapy can be good. And some medications may assist somebody dealing with the grief and the sorrow. But I want you to see by the Spirit of God that God can give you a miracle. Let me go a little. I'm preaching way better than you are shouting right now. That must mean I've, I've touched on something that's bearing witness to some of you here under the sound of my voice today. I want you to believe in a miraculous, the miraculous power of God. Where in one moment of time, instantly by his power, God can take away all the sorrow, all the travail, all the images, all the nightmares, all the frustration, all the toil that you went through. By the power, the supernatural power of the Spirit of God, God can so change the inside of you that you'll never be bothered by it again to his own glory. I believe that with all my heart. Now you say, Pastor Brown, you're giving somebody false hope. No, that's sometimes what our clinical studies do. Give us false. I'm giving you healing through the power of the person of Jesus Christ. A hope that will lead you into faith and faith that can move the heart and the hand of God on your behalf. You know what you need? I wrote it this way. You need a Manasseh. And you need an Ephraim in your life. You say, Pastor Brown, what does that mean? As I close today, let me take you on a little journey to compare spiritual truths with spiritual. Are y'all out there today? I want to take you back into the time even before there was a people called Israel, but to a man called Israel. His name was Jacob. If you're familiar with the word of God, you know he was the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise had been made to Abraham. It had been held by Isaac but it had been multiplied by Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons plus many daughters. Jacob's life is a narrative of his own personal failures at times, deception. He was called the deceiver. 
even from his mother's womb. He deceived his own brother for his birthright, his twin brother Esau, for his birthright and also to gain his blessing. You know the narrative. I'm not going to preach all of Jacob's life. But he was also because he wrestled with an angel one night. He wrestled with an angel and he refused to let the angel go. The Bible says that he walked with a limp from that day forward. And God said, up until this time, you've always been known as Jacob. But from this day forward, you'll be called Israel. Jacob meant deceiver, but Israel meant a prince. And the scripture tells us that of his 12 sons, it was the latter two sons that unfortunately Jacob still struggled with some weaknesses in his character. And he exhibited favoritism to his two sons. His two sons, the last two, were born to his favorite wife. I know that sounds like something born of a Jerry Springer show, but just go with me and work with me. And so in this particular passage of scripture, we find that those two boys was Benjamin and Joseph. And they were born to his wife, Rachel, and he loved them, especially Benjamin, which was his youngest child. He held him close to his bosom. But he had shown favoritism to Joseph in Joseph's formative years as he moved through adolescence into teenage years. And the Bible record, the narrative is that he made him a coat of many colors. You know that story. You've heard about it, some of you, in Sunday school in days gone by. And that coat of many colors distinguished him from his brethren, and it created within his brothers a, a jealousy and an envy towards them and the favoritism that was being exhibited. And then to top all this off, the Bible tells us that that Joseph woke up one morning and he said, I've dreamed a dream. And in the dream, he gave a narrative that made those that were listening think that there would come a day that they would bow before him. It was easily discernible in the dream that it was a dream that said his brothers would one day bow before him. Joseph goes to bed that night and he dreams another dream. And this time, not only is it a dream that implies that the brothers are going to bow, but also his father and his mother are going to one day bow before Joseph. And as a result of that dream, the Bible says that his own brothers hated him. They hated him. They were envious of him, but they hated him, and they sought for an occasion. Are y'all out there today? They sought for an occasion which they might vindicate their own bitterness and frustration with this young man that they called the dreamer. And we know that Jacob had sheep, and the brothers followed the sheep, and they were gone near Beersheba and passed out into the mountains of the Judean wilderness until there was a time that Jacob said to Joseph, Joseph, why don't you go and check on your brothers? Take them some food. They've been out in the field for some time. And the scripture narrative is this, that, J- that Joseph took food with him. And, and, he, and he went on this journey. And they, his brothers, saw from afar Joseph coming on the horizon. They'd been talking about him, plotting against him. And they said, there comes the dreamer right there. And oddly enough, he was wearing his own coat of many colors. And they conspired against him. And they tried to decide what they might do. Some said kill him. Others said wound him. Some said just hide him. And so they were conspiring against him. And when he got close, they stripped him of his garment. Ripped his garment off of his body. Made him naked. Then they dropped him down in a pit, a lowest place. And there they conspired of what they might even do worse to him. So he's being abused by his own brothers, his own family. And he had come there with resources. He had come there to do them good. But now they're doing him evil. And just as they are plotting to go ahead and kill them, or to kill him, they look up and there's a caravan along that route of Midianites, or Ishmaelites, the scripture says, that are making their way to Egypt and they're going to trade, they're trafficking what the word means in the language trafficking in Egypt and so one of the brothers said rather than kill him let's take him up out of the pit and let's sell him to this Ishmaelite traders and they traded him this is where he's also a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver he was betrayed by his own brothers But the Bible tells us later in the Psalms, and I know this is a long story that I'm going to condense, and I can't preach it all, certainly here today, because I can't wear you away in telling this very powerful and impacting story. But let me finish today, if you don't care today. But the Bible says that in in that context, that when he was sold, they, they hurt his feet with irons. That means the Israelites put him in irons. And he was, had to march with other slaves over 200 miles down to Egypt. And the writer later tells us in Genesis that when the brothers are actually now confronted with Joseph, who survives this experience, you know what, I'm preaching to some survivors today. There's somebody under the sound of my voice. You too been hurt, wounded, and abused. And you didn't know it, but God was keeping you and bringing you to a place where one day, 
One day His glory is going to be made known in your life. And it's going to be a testimony. And the Bible says that his brothers, his brothers said, we heard the anguish of his soul. When he cried out and besought us and said, please. He begged his brothers not to betray him like that. He begged his brothers not to sell him as a slave. But he was sold into slavery. When he arrived in Egypt, and many of you are familiar with this narrative, he was bought by Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain, noted in Scripture, as the captain of the Egyptian guard. And he was prosperous. And it doesn't take long for Potiphar to note that God was with him. I want you to know today, now this will help you today, this is a revelation, that God can be with you even during difficult days of your life. Even when things are going around, even when you feel shackled and pained and in challenging situations, there's a God that has not abandoned you, that He's still watching over you, He still cares for you, and I'll tell you what, He's got His hand on you. If you'll trust Him, He'll have His hand on you. He'll bring you through it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them all the Lord will deliver him if we'll but believe, if we'll but believe. The Bible tells us that Potiphar saw the blessing of God on him, and he made him steward of all of his house. Then the scripture says that one day Potiphar was gone away. And I know y'all are familiar. But I hope y'all are getting something out of this. I'm going to preach it anyhow. I've got my kids come up, supper provided, no service tonight. I might as well just preach on through. The scripture says that one day he was alone in the house taking care of his business. And Mrs. Potiphar had been watching this young Hebrew as he grew and matured. Probably a specimen like myself or Jojo, one of us. And it wasn't long before lust. People ask me, Pastor, why do you wear these long sleeve shirts up here? I said, but I can't let these muscles ripple out here in front of these ladies. Are you kidding me? So just, that's not in the notes, but it is in my heart. <laughs> but Mrs. Potiphar wasn't long before she starts lusting for young Joseph. And so one day when nobody's around, she catches hold and she says, come lie with me. But Joseph is a man of integrity. He's a man of integrity before the law was given, before the New Testament epistles, before the Spirit of God. He's a man of integrity. He said, how can I do? God is working in his heart. How can I do such a thing? And it so frustrated her that she cried out as if she was being raped. Here he's the victim, but now he's being made to be the violator. Potiphar comes home. He's outraged. And Potiphar throws him in prison and he's in prison for a period of time and while in prison and I have to shorten this today while in prison the gift that helped lead him into trauma long years ago begins to agitate on the inside of him again two of the king's leaders are put in prison and they dream dreams and they know that there's a spiritual interpretation to these dreams but they can't interpret it they come to Joseph Joseph interprets the dreams, and it's fulfilled exactly. Let me tell you, your gift will still work in a season of affliction. The giftings of God. But Joseph told the one whose life was spared, when you get out of here, remember me. But he forgot. And for two more years, young Joseph, broken in heart, but with the giftings of God, is still held in prison. Until God... I'm telling you, God is a God of timing. You say, Pastor, it hasn't happened yet for me. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen for you. And so just keep on believing. Hold on, be patient. Wait on God. He's always on time. He just ain't on your time. And so then Pharaoh dreams a dream. And he shares it because he knows there's a spiritual depth to it, interpretation. Nobody, not all the trained musicians, not all the men with the wisdom of the world could interpret it. But that's when the butler said, ah, oh, I forgot. While I was in prison, there was a young boy brought as a captive of the Hebrews. And he shared my dream. And that word got to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, go get him. And they went and they cleaned Joseph up, shaved him, brought him before the king. The king, King Pharaoh, shared the dream. And immediately, thank God for the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. God who sees into the darkness and understands all mystery and all knowledge. Immediately gives Joseph a prophetic word. And he doesn't have to go home and ponder it and contemplate it and jump up and down. But immediately as he's hearing what Pharaoh was saying, out of his own belly is a river and a bubbling forth and an interpretation. And he gives the Pharaoh the interpretation. And then he even gives wisdom, supernatural wisdom. Let a man be 
be chosen from among you that we will put because there's famine coming and the famine needs to be, uh, be stored up with, for seven years of the good season that's about to come to prepare for the famine. Let somebody with wisdom be placed uh, uh, to take care of the king's resources. And Pharaoh from his throne, the most powerful man in all of the world said, well, as I look over all my kingdom, I cannot find anybody. I can't find anybody with the wisdom that you've got. So how about you be my prime minister and take care of my resources and nobody will be higher in the kingdom than you other than me. And I got to thinking about that for just a moment and I said, now isn't that just like God? God has the ability to keep us even through our difficult days and bring us out on the other side with such a transformed life. Because when you think about this, the Bible says they took Joseph and they ripped his clothes from him. Took his clothes right off his back. But the Bible says that Pharaoh put fine linen on him. The Bible says they hurt his feet with chains. But the Bible says that Pharaoh put a chain of gold around about his neck. The Bible says he had to walk 200 miles as chained uh, a slave. But now the Bible says he'll ride in Pharaoh's chariot. And when he comes near the common person, the common person has to kneel and bow down before the second man in all the kingdom. And you say, Pastor Brown, that's so powerful. That's a powerful story right there. And then to add to taking Joseph to the next level of life, he gives him a wife who's the daughter of a priest. Now, did you know, and I'm going to close with this right here. I'm going to lead to this final place in just a moment. This is such a powerful story, and I don't have time to preach it all today. The, his wife is the daughter of a priest whose name is given in Scripture. It's like Potiphar. It's very much akin to Potiphar. If you do much study on this, there's a lot of Jewish scribes that believe it was the same person. That Potiphar, the priest, whose daughter was given to Joseph, is the same as the Potiphar who bought him from the Ishmaelite traders. And then, in anger, put him in prison. And the Jewish scribes tell it this way. That Potiphar had bought him to be his sexual slave. But the angel Gabriel came down and intervened and castrated Potiphar. You can read it just like I did. And in doing so, Potiphar joined that priesthood over that pagan deity because it required being a eunuch, and he was now. Thus now, if that be the case, we see why Mrs. Potiphar has got her eye on young Joseph because Mr. Potiphar is not in the bed any longer. Does, are y'all with me out there today? So now, whether or not that's the case or not, I cannot say. But I can say this. Is that, wouldn't that be just like God? They said, the people that hurt you and wounded you, and even the desperate housewife who tried to violate you, I'm going to give you the young beauty queen instead to be your wife. And when Joseph marries her, after a period of time, she has her firstborn child. And when they place that firstborn child in Joseph's arms, he's got the wealth of Egypt at his fingertips. But all that is of no avail to you if your heart is still broken. If you're still living in the trauma and the pain of the hurt that people put you through, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much kind of car you drive, or what kind of house you live in, because you'll live in sorrow and bitterness of soul. But in accordance with the culture of his Hebrew forefathers, when they put that little boy in his arms, he didn't just give him an Egyptian name, he gave him a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew name reflected the work of grace that God had done in his life. And he said, I want to call you Manasseh. Because you know what Manasseh means? God hath made me forget all the toil, all the sorrow, all the shame, all the pain, supernaturally by his power and by his grace. God's washed it away in accordance with his love for me. And that's why I came to this house to tell you today, you might need a Manasseh. In your life, a supernatural work of the power of God. A couple of years later, Joseph's wife has a second child. They put this child in his arms. 
he looks down at the baby boy. He said, I'll call you Ephraim because God has called me to be fruitful in the land of my afflictions. You don't have to live in sorrow of heart. You don't have to live in the pain of what other people have done to you. There's a God in heaven that can give you a Manasseh and he can give you an Ephraim. He can give you a Manasseh and he can give you an Ephraim. And your life can be blessed. And God can even use you later to be a blessing and a light to even people who may have hurt you the way that Joseph was. I'm going to ask our church family, whoever's coming back to join me today, if that's you, Brother Daryl. Church family, I've been really, as I close, and I'm leaving off quite a lot. But that's all right. I know it's a long time. Church family, today, people need the healing power of God. The healing power of God is not just in your physical body. I, met, I, I said this message has a title and a subtitle, and I want, to allow, I want to see if I can reach back around and bring it to the forefront again. It takes the Spirit of God revealing these things to you that you might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Does that make sense? That you might know. The devil wants you to live in ignorance, doesn't he? He wants us to live in darkness, blinded by our pain and our sorrow, and never see the light, the full light of redemption and grace. But the Spirit of God has come. The Spirit of God to reveal to you that God can give you a Manasseh. He can make you forget all the toil of your father's house. God can give you a grace that's so rich and so real that you'll eventually be able to forgive those who hurt you. And you won't be bound to the pain that they caused you. And you'll have joy. And your life will become fruitful. I read one commentary that said that Manasseh means forgetfulness. Ephraim means fruitful. But you can't have fruitful without forgetfulness. you got to let it go. By the power of the love of God and by the power of the grace of God. And you say, Pastor, how can I? I can't. No, you can't of yourself. But the Spirit of God can give you a grace that's so real, so genuine, so authentic that the trauma that you've experienced in the past can't rob your present nor your future. Does that make sense today? I like to have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I've really been praying about this message. Because we live in a generation where people are hurting, wounded. If I had preached on physical healing today, the obvious thing to do at the end of the message would be, is there any sick among you? Let us pray for you today. You would expect that. But I didn't preach about physical healing today, but emotional, spiritual, psychological Trauma that has hurt and wounded you, but God can heal you. You can have a Manasseh in your life. I think it would be wrong, and it would, it would rob the sincerity of this message if I didn't tell you today that I and the other pastors of this assembly would love to pray with you today. That you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to... You don't have to sit among us as a, as a believer and be afraid to raise a hand and say, I've got hurt in my life, and I need Manasseh. I need God to give me a Manasseh, something miraculous in my heart to heal the hurt that's in my heart. See, God heals the broken in heart, and God can heal your heart. But you've got to be honest with it. We're here to pray for you, pray with you. We're here to come alongside. You've got a church family that loves you today. And we want to believe for God's best, God's best for you. That your life will not have the continuing lingering effects of the trauma that happened 10 years ago, 5 years ago, last week. Whatever the case of abuse or neglect Trauma of war, 
whoever I'm preaching to today, I just want to pray that God will give you a Manasseh first, and he'll give you an Ephraim. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, in a moment I'm going to come forward, but I'm going to signify by the upraised hand, and I'm, it's going to take great courage on your part, but don't be afraid to say, Pastor, I just need the church family. I'd like for our pastors to pray.